Welcome to Landwards, the podcast for the land-based engineering community, brought to you by the Institution of Agricultural Engineers. Welcome to the IIGREES Landwards podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Andy Newbold, and I am joined today by William Tewer, who is a member of the IIGREES, sits on the IIGREES Council and is a rural entrepreneur. Hello, William. Hi, Andy. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, thank you. Yeah. Good man. Uh, let's let's start at the beginning, shall we? Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, Andy, I'm a uh, farmer's son uh, from the central uplands of Cumbria. So uh, I'm a uh, how would you so uh, mixed family farm of uh, beef, sheep, and cereals uh, in a very lovely area of the countryside, but a, a particularly hard area for farming. Um, so I grew up uh, on our family farm, which we still have today, um, been exposed to all the excitements and joys and realities of the farming world. Um, but it's all from an engineering point of view. My dad was actually a, a trained engineer who specialised in Cummins engines in HGVs. And at a sort of in his mid-20s, he, he came onto the family farm, which was my mother's farm, uh, and became a full-time farmer. And, and that's sort of really where my background in agricultural engineering sort of kindles. He, he was a really good engineer, still is. He is very good at turning his hand to many things, um, whether it be fixing a tractor, building a shed, uh, laying water pipe to put a uh, uh, some water feeds in somewhere, you know, just really an all rounder. And and from a very early age, I used to follow him around the farm, particularly when it was involved spannering, fixing, repairing, uh, listening to him curse at problems, fix things, and yeah, that was so. My upbringing really um, was was very you know very engineering based even though I was a farmer. Um, and we, you know, as I grew older from my sort of into my early teens, uh, I began to look at, you know, wanting to develop that more. So at a roundabout when I was 14, my dad sent me down to the local engineers in the village. Uh, he was an agricultural engineer. And I would go there uh, weekends firstly and then I used to go down after school and and that was it was a fantastic grounding really I learned how to fix a huge array of the good the bad and the ugly so from from hay bobs balers uh very old tractors to vans and cars cattle crushes and and also do some metal fabrication and that really set me on the road of essentially becoming an engineer um, you talked about. Do you want to tell us about school and about about you know whether you had any issues with education and development? Yeah, so um, I'm heavily dyslexic. Maybe not as bad as I, I I was when I was growing up. I've probably become good at managing it, but I was classed as severely dyslexic uh, from a very early age at school. Um, that presented a lot of problems for me in primary and parts of secondary, but I think I've learned to overcome them. Um, when I went on to to first to um, university, I got a lot of support. Um, 
that really helped. Uh, I learned maybe to deal with it better myself. But dyslexia was a real, you know, part of my life, essentially. Um, I think what happened was I was, from a very early age, I was very good with turning my hands to things. So whether it was fixing my bike, taking something to pieces and rebuilding it. And at that age, you know, at an early sort of teenage age or actually below that, from sort of when I was eight onwards, uh, I was seeing a specialist for them to try and understand what was wrong. Um, and essentially, I was dyslexic, but they couldn't work it out. You know, I could rebuild an engine. I could put my bike back together. I could take it to pieces and put it back together. And that baffled both the school and the specialists that actually I could not read and write. Uh, I knew what was going on in my head, but I could never put that pen to paper and write it down. And uh, eventually I, I got some specialist help um, from when I was about 10 onwards. Uh, and that started to really, you know, get me going. Um, I come from a background, as I said, a farmer, but we also had uh, a lot of tourism. So we had holiday cottage, bed and breakfast, uh, caravanners. And that actually helped with the confidence point of view. So I was, I was, I was, as I grew up, I became a lot more confident with talking to people I didn't know. Um, you know, dealing with people uh, who I didn't know. And I, and I felt that was probably, when I look back on it now, was a real help both to me as a person, but also helped with my dyslexia, gave me the confidence to, to maybe talk about it and address the situation, but also um, made me not afraid to talk about it. Um, and do you think, do you feel like your dyslexia excluded you? It did initially, yes. Um, when I was uh, very early at school, you know, I was I was put into what was essentially then remedial classes, um, and I got very bored and I got very fed up. Um, you know, I, I understood what I was being taught. I could work it out in my head. I had no issues. I got very bored because I'd, I'd within five minutes of walking into them classes, I'd understood what I was being taught, but I couldn't put that pen to paper and I couldn't write it down and. I struggled to even read it back to the teachers. That was a really difficult thing. But then, you know, as eventually people understood what dyslexia was and, and what level of what type of dyslexia I had, oh, it was actually dyslexia and that I was severely dyslexic, things got easier. So I started to get different support. Um, teachers started to understand, you know, different ways of teaching me um and that that helped greatly so from as i moved into secondary education and then on to university it became much less of a challenge you know it, it was from where I'd, I'd come from i i, I begin to find that no i was no different to anybody else what why did you why did you decide to become an agricultural engineer oh that's a good question andy which <laughs> I probably ask myself on certain days a lot. <laughs> I, as I said, back in my growing up, I, my dad was an engineer. Um, then I got exposed to engineering. I think it's because it was a mix of the the practical, hands-on, challenging your brain, especially with agricultural engineering. When I had set off working at the, the engineers down my village, I suddenly realised the diversity of what I was doing or the challenges I had to face. 
So one day you could be you could be fixing a tractor, you might be servicing it. The next day I might be working out uh, how to cut some joints for a shed extension. I'll put together a, an extension to a gate. You know, lots of things which involve lots of different skills. So it was never dull. Um, the range of equipment which came through that workshop was very, very varied and wide. And I really enjoyed that. You know, I really blossomed in that environment. And I, and that's sort of where, I, you know, I went forward from that, realising actually this is a really interesting career and uh, I wanted to develop it, basically. What what did you study? So initially I, I came out of school with GCSEs. Um, and dyslexia meant I was not particularly academic and my grading uh, reflected that. Uh, so I went to our local college, which is the uh, former Newton Rig, and I studied an ND in agricultural engineering, a BTEC in uh, motor vehicle repairs, and then uh, some more BTECs in welding. So it was, a, it was just a great, it was a two-year course. Um, that set me up fantastically to see what I wanted to do in later life. And at that time, I hadn't really decided. I, I hadn't actually thought I would get into university at all um, because of the issues I'd had at school with my dyslexia and the grades. But I did reasonably well at, uh, at Newton Rigg. And I went to Harper Adams to an open day and I met several tutors we talked to them uh, and I was actually accepted in there um, so I went off then to Harper Adams once I finished at Newton Rigg to do a HND in engineering design and development and that was another fantastic step for me uh, I got a lot of support at Harper Adams in my learning and my dyslexia but also it's a great university uh, for engineering especially agricultural engineering it's pleasing to, to hear that you were also the uh, the course representative, because that's a that's a that's a seat I kept warm in uh, nineteen ninety one to nineteen ninety three for BNG as well. So, yeah, I, uh, it's actually a, a really rewarding role like, to be chosen by your colleagues to be a course representative and immerse yourselves in the the other aspects of university which you wouldn't always see. So, having to you know to the, the early, I would say, the early skills of moving on into business, I think it was a really helpful thing, developing my social skills, uh, developing my skills of dealing with people and understanding different opinions and respecting people's judgments and opinions on situations and also building some great friendships. Well, no, it's a fair comment. Um, so following Harper, what was your route into the industry? Well, I would always see it as a little bit of luck, uh, or a lot of luck, <laughs> in my case. So while I was at Harper, we obviously had a, uh, a year out uh, where we had to choose an employer. Uh, and I wrote to several, and, and I actually got accepted for an interview at John Deere uh, from, a, from initially my six-month placement period. Uh, so off I trotted to, to Langer as a, as a, as a very um, naive engineer and I, I sat in a room full of uh i would say there was 12 or 14 of us and i remember this was a completely different 
world to me. But I was interviewed by three or four people. Uh, I think two of them are, are still at uh, John Deere to this day. And I got accepted as a, as a position um, initially for what was called SAP Implementation which is a, a rather bizarre title, but it was basically looking at the integration of a management system into John Deere to help manage the whole goods and the pricing of equipment. It was, in a way, it was completely almost alien to me was, was that, but actually a very interesting project. So I, I did initially four months, and then I moved very quickly into supporting engineering at John Deere for another two months. And then... I got another six months placement offered to me in parts and service marketing. And that was really my sort of my development into the industry. So I went back to Harper and finished my HND. At that time, I was undecided what I was going to do. But my initial hopes were to, to top up to a degree. So I finished my HND and then top up to a degree. Um, but just as I was finishing my HND, I, I received a phone call from, from John Deere and asked me if I was interested in a position which had become available uh, in the commercial division. Uh, and it was a sales demonstrator instructor job. And I was kind of taken a little bit aback by that. So off again, I trotted to Langer uh, and I had a chat with uh, David Hart. Um, and I was offered a position as a sales demonstrator instructor. And so two months later, after finishing my studies at Harper, uh, having a couple of weeks at home, shearing the sheep, helping with some fencing work, I off again with my car full off down to Langer. And that was the start of my career, really. Um, I was kind of in a little sort of feeling this is very bizarre you know I was a I was a farmer's son from Cumbria I was dyslexic and I'd ended up at one of the largest machinery manufacturers in the world so for the first sort of six months it all seemed very surreal but from that point onwards you know I I really prospered you know I was in John Deere with a great set of lads I, I shared a house with some other lads who just started in, in John Deere doing various different roles and it was a fantastic starting position for my career. So I was exposed to both sales, service and engineering in that role for the commercial side. So I covered golf courses, local councils, uh, large accounts dealing with the, the commercial side of the business, which is golf and turf, commercial mowing. So I would be uh, in charge of demonstrations, uh, in charge of sales training, delivering sales training to the dealer network. And then as my role developed, I moved in to do some sales training um, and then managing shows and events in the division. And it, it was an extremely uh, diverse role and it gave me a great insight into the varied positions at John Deere from both sales, service, uh, marketing, and engineering. Um, just, you know, going on from your first position with John Deere, tell us a bit more about your journey and how it's led you to where you are today. So my journey, <laughs> it's, it's been a sort of a, 
it's not certainly been a straight path. And I've always been very open-minded to take experiences and understand different aspects of businesses, the sector we work in. So when I when I was um, I think I'd been I'd done four years as the sales demonstrator instructor. Um, I was approached uh, by um, one of the managers asking, would I consider moving over to the ag side into the service department? And I would initially start covering the UK for hay and forage equipment. So that was supporting balers, moors, and then the service advisor aspect, which was a technical diagnostics tool, which John Deere uses to interface with the equipment. So I stepped into that role uh, just as the season started in, I think it was around about May, June time. So I was very quickly uh, onto the road, into the field with dealers, looking at uh, equipment failure, looking at optimization, helping the sale, um, the service team, uh, the John Deere service team across the UK. Um, and I loved that job. It was absolutely fantastic. And as I grew, I, I, because I'd come off a farm, I had a good understanding of silage, hay, moors, mocos, balers. Um, it, it, was, it was a big benefit that. And I, I did well in that job. And eventually I was offered the opportunity to, to take on a larger area. Uh, so... Then I started working across Europe uh, in what's called the DTAC. So there was a reorganization. So that's India, and that resulted in me moving into the dealer technical um, area. So more expertise, but covering from a, from a European area. And I also took on the Forager product line in the UK and Ireland and offered support across English-speaking uh, countries in Western Europe. Um, when I say English speaking, so where if there was a requirement for an English speaking support in them other European countries, I would be asked to assist with that. Uh, and again, so that was a, a great opportunity for me. Um, I, I, I learned a lot uh, about engineering. I was involved in several projects in fetching new equipment to the market. So that was from the concept through to the development through to the field testing and then to the introduction. Uh, and that was a real good grounding to the process of engineering, the costs associated with it, but also the concept of fetching something to the marketplace. From that, I, I did that until I think it was late 2009. And I was approached, did I want to move into the sales side? And that was something... I'd seen and I and I'd thought, well, yeah, why why not? So I became a, a territory manager covering a dealer network from uh, which could basically cover the northern England and southern Scotland. And that gave me a great exposure to the actual financials of the agricultural machinery market. So dealers, incentivizing dealers to sell, engaging customers in the process, customer satisfaction. And everything which goes with it. Uh, so I spent four years in that role, which fetches us a little bit closer to what I'm doing today. As during that time, I'd always been very interested in renewables. 
I'd shown a particular interest in what was the Harvest Lab product on the forages back in my service days because that developed heavily in Germany on anaerobic digesters. I'd always wanted at some point to become involved in emerging technologies, the renewables, and I made a decision to, to move out of the sector essentially or out of the business uh, into, where, into something more closely related to where I am today. So following a very short stint at a dealer, I moved to a company that was selling anaerobic digesters or actually we're importing a design from Austria into the UK and I went to work for them. So it was an absolute complete change. It was a really big gamble for me. Um, I really had put myself out of my comfort zone, <laughs> essentially. Um, but I found that role really, really interesting because it was actually a very technically based role in that when you were approaching a customer to sell an AD plant, you were looking at so many different aspects. And a lot of them aspects are actually engineering based, whether it be the crop, whether it be the site that they wanted to build the AD plant on, whether it be the, the technology that they were looking at the plant so that was a, a really interesting role and i did that role for three years which brings us to where we are today where um, i'm managing uh, an ad plant uh, i'm doing consultancy work across several others uh, and also doing consultancy work in the agricultural industry for uh, a range of clients um, and i think if i look back on it it was really the the broad experiences I gained in my career in my early career, which helped me get to where I am today. So just give us a bit more detail about the day job now. So my day job is is quite diverse. Um, I I have sort of three to four main factors which affect my day job or what I do. So firstly being I manage a large anaerobic digester and farming enterprise at Dumfries. Uh, for a landowner. Uh, both of us, are, both the landowner and myself, are very hands-on in that role. Um, so we, 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 we manage that uh, business both from a, from a sort of a technology-based point of view. So we, we tend to remotely manage that. We, we have a, a team there, a contractor which operates the farm. He runs the AD plant and he does, does the hands-on role, as we say, spanners, uh, and shovels and brushes with myself uh, looking at the business from a from a management perspective. So whether that's the biology of the AD plant, whether it's the electrical connection, whether it's the generation or whether it's the feedstock, I'm overseeing what happens at that site uh, and making sure that it performs the best it can, has the best feedstock into the plant and is getting the best return on its investment from the electricity that it produces, but also the heat. So that's my first aspect. Um, my second aspect would be the, the family farm. Uh, so I'm still heavily involved with my parents in the family farm. It is a small farm, but it does take up a lot of my time. Um, we have some sheep, we have some pigs, and we have a very large tourism enterprise, which is growing, so that's glamping, uh, camping, holiday cottages, um, and some limited bed and breakfast. But the interesting thing with that 
is it is all linked to the farm. That is very much a, a business which is linked to the environment it's in. So the people coming to the, the glamping site or even to the camping site are coming because they feel they are part of the, the business that it represents. So a small family farm, uh, and we have to farm in a way which essentially represents that. And then, then the final aspect is my consultancy, and my consultancy ranges from uh, simply diagnosing issues on AD plants and its associated equipment through to uh, a certain level of bespoke work with agricultural investment. So I, I will engage in um, some work around consultancy around agricultural investments and it would be one of the more difficult to talk about aspects of my role because some of my clients uh would request that i don't talk about you, that role you could tell us but then you'd have to kill us correct andy uh, or they may kill me that might yeah. be the, <laughs> right well in that uh, I, think, no, no. I think on that on that slightly sinister note i think we'll we'll move on um <laughs> On something on some slightly thicker ice, some slightly slightly more sensible ground. Um, what role does volunteering play in your life? Yeah, they, they, again, another interesting one. I had to think a little bit. It actually takes up a lot more of my life than I probably realise, um, which involves a lot of juggling. But I've been involved for several years, actually probably over a decade now, in an um, organisation, a voluntary organisation called the Admos Ski Club. And claim to fame is we have the longest ski lift in England, and that's a real ski lift on real snow when it snows. Uh, so Yadmos is a ski club located high in the Pennines above Alston. We go up above 700 metres, uh, we'll experience around about 28 days of skiing on real snow. And we have a we have a Pommer lift, which was imported from the continent around about 20 years ago, 25 years ago. And we have a uh, large piece basher, which is a rather nice piece of kit, Bombardier. Uh, and then all the associated things which go with that. Uh, so that's a voluntary organisation. We have members who can join the ski club uh, and you you can ski up there when it snows or the conditions dictate. And it, it's a really interesting organisation because it presents me with, with a lot of different people from different backgrounds with different needs. And I, I, I felt it was something very different from what I would normally be involved in. And, it, and it's made me look at maybe the world in a more broader profile because I'm dealing with people from very, very different backgrounds. And I think one thing in agriculture is we're, we're often involved with people in agriculture and in engineering, in agricultural engineering, we're always involved with other people in agricultural engineering and we don't probably get out of that that often. And I think that that role helped has helped me greatly look a little bit outside the box, might be the word. Um, and really the great work that it does, it offers a, a way of people in the UK to ski uh, on, a, on, a, on a low cost basis. So that the philosophy of the, of the, of the organisation is to make skiing available to everybody that can participate in it at, a, at the, the minimum cost possible. 
um, and, and it's a great organisation in doing that. And it has a great following, a really good membership. And considering how variable our winters can be, uh, you know, is a testament to the people who, who push that organisation forward. I imagine you're having a bit more of a demand uh, now that people can't get out of the country for holidays, that if you have a cold, hard winter this next year, you might get a few more members. I think it could be a really interesting one because, you know, we, we have seen uh, during lockdown, unfortunately, this this year being, or the past year, we, we experienced what would have been one of our best winters. But for 90% of the time, we were in a lockdown situation where where we couldn't allow skiing to happen. And um, it was quite frustrating because, yeah, we were inundated by people wanting to ski. And, and according to the security cameras, I think quite a few people did, did take up the ability to, to get out and exercise in the fresh air might be the way yeah, of phrasing just couldn't, it. You presumably the lift, the lift wasn't... The lift and, the, and all the facilities, unfortunately, had to remain closed. Um, but, yeah, moving into um, what we look at, hopefully, this year, well, when we talk about this year, yeah, this will be this winter coming. It's not something you want to think about in the ag industry, is it? The winter coming. But hopefully we will see a, a cold easterly uh, winter for us, which will bring yeah. copious amounts of snow to the Pennines. I'm say, sure there's several listeners shaking their head and going, no, we don't want that, William. I, I'll don't. have a word with my dad about whether the bats are flying backwards <laughs> and what he's seeing with these slugs at the moment. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to you on that one. Um, shall, we, shall, we, shall we move on? It's not your only, only volunteer responsibility, is it? The Yadmos Ski Club. Um, so what else do you do? I'm vice chairman of our local show, uh, which is the Crosby Ravensworth Agricultural Show and Vintage Show. And it is a, how would I say, I'd like to say it's a typical show, but it's probably one of those that's it's an endangered species, actually. It's a very special, it's a very special show in my limited experience. <laughs> actually, it is, Andy, as, as you gave me the great pleasure of coming to judge the vintage section, uh, I believe, wasn't it? Um, mm. Two years ago. Yeah. No, it's a very nice day out and a very nice lunch. Thank you very much. Great. I mean, it is, again, a, a great... Uh, organization to be involved in extremely frustrating at sometimes because you are having to balance the needs of the exhibitors with the realities of what the show and the community requires and essentially it is a show for the community and and as rural communities have evolved you you have to try and engage that community uh, with what you have already, so that can be the agricultural aspects, but with also new aspects, such as one of the biggest growth areas in the show has been the, well, one, the vintage, uh, which is expanded out from just agricultural vintage equipment, but two yep. is horses and dogs. And we've seen a huge growth in uh, the event in Jim Carner's, but also dog shows. You know, I think the dog show is probably one of the best attended aspects of the show. And that that presents a lot of challenges for the committee in, in one, engaging with the community, getting people through the, through the gate. Uh, like any show, the gate is the key to it. And we, we've, we've worked hard in the last few years to turn around what essentially was a failing show to something now, which actually 
makes money. And it's important for that reason to be able to invest in the community and grow the show and represent all those in the community. Is it, uh, is it fair to ask whether or not there will be a show in 2021? I think one of the great things of being a small, very flexible, small, committed organisation is we can is we can sit on the fence, Andy. Yeah. I'll coin the phrase. And well, you won't be the only one locally. Speaking <laughs> as the secretary of Killington Sports, we've sat on the fence for two months, and unfortunately, we have pulled the plug now. But um, be that as it may, we we are in a position where we may run aspects of the show subject to the local community engaging behind this where we can in it we we've set out the stall essentially that we will run if we can and as long as we can maintain a level of requirement on social distancing again all subject to what may change and as we've learned in the last year and a half these things will change day by day it is dynamic we we do hope we can return because we were a late show, so at the end of August, uh, we generally catch the end of the holiday season. Um, so we do have hopes that we will have something on the show field. What it may be is yet to be known, Andy. Who knows? Um, let's go back to Ag Engineering briefly. And the, these two questions are probably, I'll say, conjoined. Um, where do you see agricultural engineering as a discipline going? And also, what do you think the key issues are in the world? Because I think those two together fit quite nicely. Yeah, that's... Agricultural en- engineering is, is an interesting discipline. And I think the great thing about it is the sector is extremely broad. So as an- agricultural engineers, we, we're subject to the environment, the weather, technology and market demands. And where it goes is I think we have to reflect on them and think we cannot stand still. Consumer habits are evolving, growing patterns across the world and in our, across our own doorsteps that are changing. Uh, dietary habits are changing. And ultimately that filters down to the very job we do as agricultural engineers. And that is, in one way, is a key opportunity, but also it's a key issue with agricultural engineering. You know, as as engineers, we have to take on board a huge amount of changing technology on changing requirements from from producers. Uh, And that makes it, challenging as as both business is if you're an agricultural engineer or or a franchise e or or just or just a consultant engineer we we have to adopt very quickly to changing situations so that that would be i think i would see as a as a key issue but also that is a key opportunity for us you know as agricultural engineers i think it's in our instinct is if there's a problem we'll resolve it. We might not solve the problem fully at that point in time, but we'll find a way around it, we'll adopt, and we'll present the customer with some solution. And I think we should always bear that in mind as markets changes and evolves. 
Yeah, well, big big challenges throw up big solutions, don't they? And I think it's you know, there's there's a, that, that twee phrase about it's a great time to be an engineer, but it is a great time to be an engineer because the world's got some fundamental challenges, and you know we're going to need some thinking. So it's a good thing. Um, finally, what what advice would you offer to anyone considering agricultural engineering as a career? I think I've I've aired on it a little bit. But I'll and, I, and I'll and I'll summarise that in actually I was dyslexic. Uh, I had some real challenges at school, but I was allowed into the industry and embraced. And I think that sums it up: is it's a very engaging and rewarding industry. The people are very welcoming. It's quite a small community, which actually helps uh, in in being able to grow in the industry. Um, and it's very diverse. I mean, my. I, if I'd look back on my teenage years and thinking, even when I started at John Deere in my first job, I had real no thoughts that I would be sat here today talking to you, Andy, mm. about my life and aerobic digestion and a ski club. So the, the, the industry will provide you with really great opportunities. And actually, one thing it is, is it gives you a long-term stable career. You know, there's plenty of paths you can go down within the industry to do something different. You maybe want to do something different, but it doesn't necessarily mean you need to leave the industry. No. Just keep moving. Just keep moving forward. Keep moving well, forward. Yeah. William Chewer, thank you very much for a for a fascinating conversation. Um, you know, I think we could probably run and run given given what we've talked about so far. But um, I'd like to thank you for your time today, and thank you for thank you for your positive and encouraging words that that you know it's 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 very inclusive and there's something there for everybody. You know, I think I think we can all we can all reflect on that and reflect on that in our own paths in ag engineering. And you know, I certainly am very grateful for for what it's given me. So I, I'm grateful for your insight, William. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. For more information, visit www.iagree.org. You have been listening to Landwards, the podcast for the land-based engineering community, brought to you by the Institution of Agricultural Engineers.